from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is Ag Day. You could call him a giant in agriculture. We'll travel to a popular stop on the map that's larger than life. The president travels to rural America, announcing billions in aid. It's about restoring pride to rural, to rural communities that have been left behind for far too long. And there's finally some good news to report about a key U.S. waterway. A lot of green dots there that used to be brown. What that means for fertilizer shipments right now on Ag Day. Ag Day, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when the name on the cap matches the power of one's purpose. Pioneer, what's next happens here. Good morning, I'm Clinton Griffiths. For a second year in a row, the Mississippi River is sitting at historic lows. But there is some good news to report as water levels appear to be on the rise yet again, thanks to some recent rains. Ag Day's Michelle Rook is continuing to monitor things. And Michelle, a lot of precipitation is needed though. That's right, but at least for now, the Mississippi River has gotten a much needed drink of water from the recent Midwestern rains. That's helping exports to move down the river and inputs like fertilizer to move back up the river. So when you look at the fertilizer supply situation, it's more favorable than a year ago. Farmers generally apply anhydrous and potash in the fall, which are moved by rail and truck, but they also apply phosphate, which is moved by barge. So it's the most at risk when the river is low. But fertilizer market experts tell me with rain in October, the river levels have improved, and so fertilizer supplies should be in good shape for fall. We've seen water levels up and down the lower Mississippi River rise. And in fact, when we look at the NOAA river level map, a lot of green dots there that used to be brown. So it's absolutely improved. And that's very fortunate. That's very good for the fertilizer market because obviously it's November. We've got a lot of product that's trying to move up river to replace what's getting going to the field. We've just barely started the fertilizer season. So this is a big win for us. He warns this is just a short term fix and longer term more rain will be needed in the Mississippi as well as good snowpack in the north. However, retailers were more proactive this year, anticipating low water levels and many have more product in place for fall application. That's according to chemical intelligence from ICIS. There was also a big refill effort earlier this year and that put a lot of product into position already. So we're in what is typically a lull time in the market. So the river issue has not become as great as it would be say if we were at the beginning of spring when a lot of product needs to be moved. So along with low water levels, we're also seeing low levels of engagement. Fertilizer prices have been stable but are still elevated historically and may climb with more demand for volumes in November. As far as spring, there's also more product in place in anticipation of the winter river closures, which will be helpful ahead of planting. I'm Michelle Rook reporting for Ag Day. Right, thanks, Michelle. And another major shipping waterway is continuing to deal with low water levels. The Panama Canal now cutting its daily ship transits by half this winter due to severe drought. The Wall Street Journal reporting on this, saying the decision follows the driest October on record for the canal amid ongoing elevated temperatures and limited rainfall. Daily reservation slots will be cut to 25 this month and 22 next month. Now, on a normal day, it can handle an average of 40 transits. And it looks like after battling snow and cold, farmers could be in for a break over the next few days to finish harvesting. Meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht has a look ahead. 
Yeah, in fact, the latest outlook puts us back into the warmer than average category for a good portion of the United States. So between November 7th and before we get into the middle of November, uh, look at where the, uh, the bright red, deep red is located over along the Gulf Coast states and all the way back up here uh, into the Dakotas where we could start to finish uh, out some of the harvesting. What you don't see on this map is back to the west. Typically, uh, when we're tracking uh, ridges and troughs, and we start to see the cool air pocket back out here on the west coast, which would eventually spread in and across the United States. But uh, the system as a whole, the jet stream as a whole, has gone pretty zonal, and that should keep this pattern around with uh, almost quiet weather in and across the United States. And Doug was busy last week bringing in the crop before the snow hit. Uh, he farms in North Dakota, where several inches of snow fell recently. Hopefully, he managed to get a lot of that corn harvested in time. Olive Warren, your forecast coming up. President Biden traveling to a farm in Minnesota this week to tout billions of dollars in investments for rural communities. Now, the president was joined by Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack in Northfield, Minnesota, where they visited Dutch Creek Farms. The event kicked off with the White House calls a two-week Investing in Rural America event series. In all, the president touting over $5 billion in rural investments. That includes $1.7 billion to go toward climate smart agriculture practices, more than a billion for rural infrastructure, $2 billion to create jobs, $274 million to expand rural high-speed internet, and $145 million to increase access to renewable energy. Over the past four decades, we lost over 400,000 farms in America. 400,000, over 141 million acres of farmland. My plan is about investing in rural America. It's about something else as well. It's about restoring pride in the rural, to rural communities that have been left behind for far too long. Now, the money comes from infrastructure and inflation reduction laws approved earlier in the president's term. President Biden also holding a fundraiser featuring many of Minnesota's top Democrats on Wednesday. Meanwhile, in neighboring Iowa, Republican presidential candidates continuing to drum up support. On Monday, candidate Vivek Ramaswamy participated in a milkshakes with Vivek event. Former President Trump also in Iowa this week holding a rally in Sioux City. A new poll shows Mr. Trump is maintaining his lead in the early presidential nominating contest there in the state. The Iowa caucuses are scheduled for January 15th. November soybean futures touched the $13 mark again on Thursday. We'll take a look at the day's trade coming up next in Markets Now. And later, the Jolly Green Giant is food famous. We'll hear some of the big backstory from Andrew McRae as he travels the American countryside today in the country. Bayer has lost its third consecutive trial over Roundup, a California jury earlier this week finding Bayer liable for a case brought by a man who claimed his cancer was caused due to exposure from Roundup. The jury ordering Bayer to pay $332 million in damage. Now, Reuters reports it follows two other defeats for the company where it was ordered to pay $175 million and $1.25 million in two other cases involving Roundup. Now, Bayer has said it would appeal all three verdicts. Some third quarter earnings news from two big ag companies, starting with Nutrien. 
putting net earnings at $1.1 billion for the first nine months of the year, ending in September. Now that's down 83% over the same time last year. The world's largest fertilizer producer says sales in the U.S. were down 23% from a year ago. Reuters reporting the numbers fell short of what analysts had estimated for third quarter profit due to lower potash prices. Now Nutrien says potash sales volumes Though, they have climbed 23% thanks to strong sales here in North America. And from CF Industries, also hit by lower average selling prices, reporting $1.25 billion in earnings for the first nine months. Agri-Marketing says that's down 50% from last year, while net sales were down 41% from a year ago. Corn continued to pull back while soybeans pushed higher on Thursday. Ag Day's Michelle Rook has more in Markets Now. Well, a higher day in just about everything in the markets except for corn on Thursday. Ellen Brugler with Brugler Marketing joining us. And Ellen, let's talk about the corn market. It was down, made new lows for the move. You know, what's the pressure from and are we going to take out the September lows? Well, I, I think the the biggest problem is we've just got 2 billion bushels of ending stocks and, and not much hope of getting below that right now based on what we know today. Uh, export sales had been running along in a nice clip relative to a year ago, but uh, this week's sales come out this morning were not that great. Uh, so that was a little bit of a bearish influence. The uh, We are competitive with South America, but we're just not getting that much volume yet. Uh, Ethanol is pretty good, but again, today I think it's just, uh, it's harvest pressure. It's it's this, what are you going to do with that, that 14 to 15 billion bushel pile you've got sitting there? Yeah. And uh, one answer is put it on sale until somebody buys it. Conversely, soybeans were up. Is that this talk of China business or maybe a little lower Brazilian estimates or what? I think it's a little both. There was were, there were some talk that uh, China's uh, expected imports for November and December would put them at 105 million tons for the year. That would be uh, well above USDA's forecast. I'm not as bullish on that news simply because that all of that incremental business was going to be Brazilian origin, not U.S. But, uh, you know, to the degree that China takes more uh, beans, it does dry up the world supply a little bit. So I, I guess you can argue it from that standpoint. Uh, you know, November beans and January beans did hold nicely. Uh, January held the $13 mark and, and yeah. has bounced off of that technically. Uh, the the Brazilian weather, Argentine weather, it's really early, and USDA is going to be very cautious about making any changes there. But uh, we do know that that it's been on the dry side, and that, that could impact their final acreage a little bit. Cattle had an impressive day on Thursday. Phil, the chart gap area closed above it. Can we keep going? Well, I think so. Uh, gaps are meant to be filled, and we've broken six bucks after the cattle on the feed report, and now we've taken that all back. We're still down quite a bit from the all-time highs that we set back in September, but it looks to me like uh, the cattle cycle's intact. One thing that was kind of overlooked in the cattle on feed report is simply that we were still placing those heifers in the feedlots, which means we're not expanding. Uh, so that's still long-term bullish in terms of uh, decreasing calf, calf numbers and eventually steer numbers. Alan Brugler joining us with Markets Now. We'll have more Ag Day coming up. To talk to Alan about his ag market professional services, call Brugler Marketing and Management at 402-697-3623 or visit his website, www.bruglermarketing.com.
that for the most part, we're pretty much done with this significant snowfall in across the United States. For the rest of the afternoon, what you'll see is uh, the warmth building from the south to the north. So this afternoon, see that 75 degree reading and down in New Orleans, uh, upper 60s in Memphis. We're going to start to push this a little bit more to the north as we go into the weekend as that uh, ridge of high pressure builds back down to the south. As for tomorrow morning, uh, freezing temperatures and uh, typically as we get into November, you really start to see those freezing temperatures show up consecutively. Consistently is a better way to say it uh, back up here into the Dakotas. We're right at freezing tomorrow morning. Everybody else is above freezing as we go through the next couple of days. Now in terms of now that weekend forecast, as I mentioned, those 70s start to push back up here to the north, more of the 40s and the 50s in and across the Midwest. And that's coming up for tomorrow that afternoon. Let's take a look at what's going on in the jet stream. And I mentioned this earlier, uh, the zonal flow is something you're going to hear a lot about. During the summer, it was uh, the ridge of high pressure that created the extreme heat. Well, the zonal flow uh, is going to keep things moving from west to east without a lot of storm systems. We're going to be eyeing uh, some clippers you know, that are going to try to come through Canada. That's what you see right here, dropping down kind of cooling temperatures, but there's not a lot of precipitation associated with it. Now back off on Tuesday and into Wednesday of next week, we'll start eyeing our next trough. And this was I was talking about the pocket of cool air starting to show up on the West Coast. You know, the jet stream reacting to that. This is where our next storm system could come through as we get into the middle part of next week. As we've mentioned before, though, the stronger this ridge is back down here to the south, the harder it is for that energy to work across the United States. And rather, it's going to be pushed up here to the north rather than bringing down a lot of cold air or even snow. York, Nebraska, mostly cloudy, home of the world of famous Marble Museum, high around 60 degrees. York, Pennsylvania, high around 60 degrees and Highgate. I didn't have another York. Mostly cloudy, high at 50 degrees. Researchers chase answers to sudden death syndrome in soybeans. We'll have details from Kansas next. And later, we're off to meet a well-known giant in the agricultural field. The story behind this jolly green guy in the country. causes sudden death syndrome in soybeans. Important research is going on right now in Kansas State to try and answer that question. Here's an update on what they're finding and what farmers can do to try to stop it from happening. Hello everyone, my name is Rodrigo Nofri. I'm the row crop specialist here at K-State Plant Pathology Department. Today we're here to talk about sudden death syndrome on soybeans. SDS as we call it, right? This disease has a major importance across all the soybean regions um, here in the United States, even in Canada. But in Kansas, what we have seen is that this disease has increased it, its importance over the past years. We're seeing more disease, we're seeing a wider distribution now, not just in the northeast part of Kansas, but also central and north central as well. So SDS, what is SDS, right? It's caused by a fungi named Fusera virguliformi that can survive in the soil for many, many years, and infection happens right early in the season, at emergence uh, V1, V2, that's when we're uh, having that infection. And what are the conditions for SDS, right? So the conditions for SDS uh, are cold and wet soils. So what we have seen over the years is we're shifting soybean planting for early planting dates, right? With that in mind now, and if um, shifting to early planting dates, which 
uh, will be in that perfect storm, which is cold and wet soils, right? So what are the management approaches that are available for us to mitigate this disease, right? And to answer that question, we start with my master's student, Madison Kessler, funded by the Kansas Soybean Commission and the North Central Soybean Research Program as well. Like Dr. Onofre said, um, I'm working on my master's project with SDS and like he mentioned previously it starts by choosing some correct management strategies so to do that we like to choose a resistant cultivar versus a susceptible and in our multi-state project that we've been doing we've seen that our resistant cultivar can actually increase yield by 10 bushels per acre so before we plant we want to make sure that we choose a resistant cultivar um, like he also mentioned seed treatments are another important fact that you want to look at before planting um, and so for my project, we also look at a biological versus a non-biological seed treatment. And from our results, we have seen that a biological with a non-biological seed treatment has been a lot more effective. Specifically, we've looked at Ilevo and Ceramax, um, and then also Saltro and Ataplan. And Saltro and Ataplan has actually worked a lot better and more consistently for increasing our yield and also decreasing our foliar SDS symptoms as well as our root rot symptoms. Our thanks to K-State for that update. Up next, the blue and gold meets green. Uncover some giants in the agricultural field, including one very specific giant with a jolly demeanor. That story, next. The 26th Annual National FFA Convention and Expo is going on right now in Indianapolis. And former National Officer and now part of Farm Journal's Andrew McCrae joins us from the FFA Convention in Indy. And Andrew, very few things are quite as iconic as the blue and gold. That's right, Clinton. Good to be back here at the National FFA Convention to show you how old I am now. I have not missed one of these since 1989. Uh, but it's great to be back around the iconic blue and gold. I've been on the farm with Harvest this fall, but also traveling for several stories and thinking about things that are iconic. Blue Earth, Minnesota has a very iconic figure. Been around now for 120 years, at least the symbol has. It's the Jolly Green Giant. In the 1970s, completion of Interstate 90 was taking place in southern Minnesota, near the town of Blue Earth. Citizens were looking for something to lure people off the interstate and into town. One of the city fathers had an idea tied to a longtime company here. We'd had the Green Giant Canning Company for many years, so he contacted the president of Green Giant, who approved using the likeness of the giant, but said that we have to come up with all of our own funds. Citizens raised the funds quickly, and soon a company in Wisconsin was busy preparing a giant order. They had to bring him over in two loads because his arms are so big, they couldn't fit on the truck with his legs and body. So the giant came here in pieces, was assembled, and then eventually hoisted skyward in 1978 to coincide with the completion of Interstate 90. He is 55 feet tall, so once you get up onto the platform, it's kind of overwhelming how big he is. Megan has many interesting tidbits to share including the fact that before he was built, the public had seen only the giant's face on a can of vegetables, and that actually presented a challenge. They had never photographed him from behind, so they had to bring in an artist to figure out what his backside would look like. You can see all sides of the Jolly Green Giant here today, and many do. Plus, they can see memorabilia next door about the evolution of the giant, if you will. Estimates are that we get about 150 to 200,000 people just stopping through a year. The fire department comes to give the giant a bath once a year. He also sports a red scarf during the winter and occasionally wears other items to celebrate certain events. Many people in town have worked at the canning company over the years. Megan says it's a rite of passage for many kids to work a summer job during the busy packing season. 
for visitors here. The small museum next door does a great job of sharing a giant story. It's a room full of just amazing memorabilia, um, items that they have been willing to share with us, showing the history of the canning company. This giant has been standing guard here since 1978. It's something that draws thousands of visitors to the city every year and also a tribute to the many farmers of the region who grow for the label. Traveling the countryside in Blue Earth, Minnesota, I'm Andrew McCray. All right, thanks Andrew, and that's all the time we have this morning. We're sure glad you tuned in from all of us here at Ag Day, including Have a great day.